Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. We're in part three of my apologetics class, talking about worldviews, in particular, theism, atheism, and pantheism. In Building Belief, the textbook we use for this class, Chad Meister uses a worldview comparison chart to simplify all the religions of the world into three broad categories, theism, atheism, and pantheism. This strategy can help you compare and contrast five major aspects of these worldviews, including theology, ontology, epistemology, axiology, and anthropology. Don't worry about it if you don't know what those words mean yet. I'll explain it in the lecture. Next, you can evaluate each of the three main possibilities on the basis of logic and livability. This way of looking at world religions can especially help you in talking to others about the faith, and it really helps simplify the whole conversation. If you have to analyze every single religion independently, it would honestly just take forever. You'd never get anywhere. This worldview approach groups together similar religions, and it makes it practical for you to talk through the various reasons for and against the different worldviews. So if you would like to take this class for credit, please contact the Atlanta Bible College so you can register and do the necessary work for a grade. But if not, hopefully it also helps you to think through your own faith and be able to talk to others as well. Here now is Apologetics Part 3, Theism, Atheism, and Pantheism. Oh my! Theism, Atheism, and Pantheism. We'll get into what those three beliefs are and all this kind of stuff in just a minute. But worldview is a big, is a big deal. Understanding how different worldviews work will help you to make sense of what that person says because they're coming from a certain perspective on these different subjects. So this is actually going to really help you to understand people from different worldviews. Essentially, Meister argues we should break worldview into these one, two, three, four, five categories. Okay? They are theology, ontology, epistemology, axiology, and anthropology. You know, there are thousands of religions in the world today, and it's, it's kind of like always been like that, or at least for a long time it's been that way. And so it's impossible for me in an apologetics class to go through all the different religions and show you what they believe and how to interact with people of that faith. It's just, a, it's just not enough time. Uh, so that's why this worldview approach is going to be really helpful at dividing everything out into these three main categories. These are different paradigms or aspects of a worldview, okay? Theology, ontology, epistemology, axiology, anthropology. What is theology? It's basically your belief in God or gods. What's your ontology? It's your belief in reality. What is the universe? Like, specifically, what is it made of? What kind of universe is it? Epistemology is your understanding or your theory of knowledge. How do you know things? Where does knowledge come from? Axiology pertains to ethics or morals. How do you live the good life? Anthropology relates to humankind. Like, what are humans? <laughs> what are humans? Yes. That's what I meant to say. All right, so we have these three major worldviews. We have atheism, pantheism, theism. These worldviews fundamentally conflict with each other. There's no way to harmonize them together. But under each category, you might find multiple subcategories. For example, under theism, you have Christianity, Islam, Judaism. Under pantheism, you have Buddhism, some forms of Hinduism, some other religions. Under atheism, you might have the agnostics. All right, so what does an atheist believe about theology? About God? There, no God, right? No gods. Right? Capital, lowercase, whatever. They don't believe in any of it. 
No supernatural. That's even better. No supernatural. So that's another way of saying the natural realm is all there is. What was that famous cosmologist? He said the universe is all there was. Yeah, Carl Sagan. The universe is all there was, all there is, and all there ever will be. What does an atheism believe about ontology or reality? Well, they believe in the theory or the idea called naturalism, which is that the natural world is all there is. It's a closed system. There are no external beings. They believe it came about by the Big Bang plus evolution. And that's where we got our world from. They believe about knowledge that the way you come about or come to knowledge is through what method? Scientific method. Scientific method is a very slow, laborious way of getting knowledge, by the way. It's where you come up with a theory, a hypothesis, and then you design experiments to validate or invalidate the theory, and then you refine your theory based on the experiments until you get a theory that seems to cohere with reality. And so that's the scientific method. You all do it all the time. Like if you, you guys, do you guys make coffee? No. You know, like sometimes you make coffee and it's no good, and you're like, huh, something went wrong there. Put too much coffee, didn't put enough water, you know, the half and half was bad, or this creamer's no good, or whatever, you know, and then you adjust next time. You know, like this is just a natural way of going about things, scientific method. I mean, obviously it's more systematized. Uh, okay, axiology, what do atheists believe about morals? Morality. Yeah. Typically the phrase we'll see is socially constructed or determined by evolution. All right. Socially constructed means that basically your society, your culture teaches you what's right and what's wrong. Does that make sense? And it's really hard to argue that that's not really the case because, you know, all of us heard what's right and wrong from somewhere, right? It's not like many of us sat there, as Plato would, um, outside and meditated for hours on end and just sort of worked your way through what is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do based on first principles. You know, most of us don't have a mind to do that. So uh, generally our parents just tell us what's right and wrong and then it gets uh, either challenged or reinforced by our friends and TV. The other idea is that it's determined by evolution, which I'll come back to in a little bit, but that's like the idea that there's sort of like an instinct in us based on some sort of herd mentality we inherited from our evolutionary history. Do you have a question? No. Okay. All right. And then what do atheists believe about people? Evolution. That we're the master race. <laughs> Humanism. Yes, we're the master race. That's awesome. Christians believe that too because we're the last thing God made. They believe that humans are physical only. There's not some sort of spiritual component to humans. We're all physical. We're electromechanical machines. Carbon, yeah. Here's a famous atheist, Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Selfish Gene. He says, we are robot vehicles blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. That's what humans are. All right. Pantheism. Pantheism. What do pantheists believe about God? Does anybody want to take a stab at that? Everything is God. Yes. God is everything and everything is God. Right? We can say it either way. Right? So we're all part of God. God is part of us. This podium is God. I am God. You're God. And we all belong to the same God reality. It's a failure to distinguish between God and reality. God and reality are collapsed into being the same thing. God is creation. God is a creator. We're, we're all part of the same, the same reality. Pantheism usually strikes people from our culture, America, it usually strikes us as very strange, okay? But there are so many Americans that are so into New Age religion. It's not like a small little sect of people that believe this way. 
There's a ton of people, probably over a billion people, that believe this way. All right, what about the next one here, epistemology? Where do pantheists get knowledge from? The answers are not outside of yourself. They're within yourself. How do you achieve enlightenment? It's through meditation, not through the scientific method, you idiot. Scientific method is just going to give you more theories that you're unsure of. What you need to do is meditate. Look within. You can't trust the senses, and you can achieve enlightenment by meditation. Focus on the space between your thoughts. Evil, good, morals, it's an illusion. The path towards enlightenment is to eliminate attachment. If you can eliminate your attachment to the things that you care about, then when bad things happen, it won't, it won't mess with you. You'll be fine because you've already eliminated those attachments. What are people? People are really spiritual only. The physical is an illusion. The physical is not real. The spiritual is real. Physical is a deception. It tricks you into thinking that true reality is physical reality, but it's really not. You see that atheism and pantheism are really not, they don't really agree on very much, right? And so you don't find too many uh, Hindu atheists, right? Theism. What, what do theists believe about God? Yeah. One or more gods, or, or you could say capital G God, and they're apart from nature. If God is the, the spring that bubbles up with water, we're back into pantheism. God has to be apart from nature to be talking about theism. All right? So the word theism actually means belief in God. But it can be more than one God, right? There are two typical kinds of theism, right? You have mono and poly. Monotheism is belief in what? One God. Polytheism is a belief in multiple gods, okay? So there are different kinds of theism, like ancient Greek mythology where they believed in Zeus and Apollo and all those ancient gods, right? That's theism. So that would fit over here. Judaism fits over here. Islam fits over here. Mormons fit over here. A lot, a lot of religions fit in this category. Pantheism is this word pan, which means everything or all. It means everything is God. Atheism is no belief in God. Okay? So they all have theism in it. I don't know if you noticed that before. But this one is no belief in God. This is belief in everything is God. And this is belief in God. Could be one or many, but it's belief in some sort of God or gods. All right, so what about ontology? What do theists believe about the universe? Okay, that uh, God interacts with it, right? God's separate from it. What about the business about physical or spiritual? Both, right? What I want to write here is you have physical and spiritual made by God or gods. So like certain, certain other religions, like especially old school religions, they believe that the gods had a big fight and then the universe was the result of that. Uh, Christianity obviously, from the book of Genesis, teaches in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? Islam teaches that as well. So it's, it's the idea that God made the universe, so the spiritual was there first and then the physical. Both aspects exist in the same world, you know what I mean? What do theists believe about knowledge? How do you get knowledge? How do you learn things? Science and revelation. Yes. So it's taken both. You can use a scientific method and believe in God. That's fine. In fact, everyone that invented the scientific method was a theist. So they weren't atheists. And revelation is the idea that God or spirits or could even be an angel can speak to you or reveal something to you, right? And so it's not looking within for meditation, it's looking without, but it could involve meditation, could involve prayer, and that God would then reveal something to you. So it's both knowledge using your senses and knowledge through the spirit or uh, supernatural realm. How about morality? 
system of reward and punishments? There's a standard set, well, at least within the Christian view, set by God in the Muslim, you know, Christian, Muslim, Jewish view, set by God. And then humanity is both physical and spiritual, that we are not solely biomechanical machines whose purpose is to reproduce. But there is actually some sort of spiritual component to us or aspect to us that enables us to connect with God and with each other on a more spiritual level. What does spiritual mean in this case? Is, I'm trying to be as vague as possible because we're dealing with all different forms. Okay, It can mean different things in different situations. Alright, so what I want to do now with you in our time that remains is, actually let me ask you this, do these three make sense at least a little bit? Okay, you see how we're like chunking religions into these three categories? Alright, so now what I want to do is go through them and offer some criticisms. Alright, so this is another Richard Dawkins quote. Melvin, could you read this? In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you, would, you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe is the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. That's Richard Dawkins, River Out of Eden. So he's saying, look. The world stinks, it's a cold, dark place. Oh well, it's just the way it is. We're all little robots programmed to reproduce and the DNA really has already wired us to do certain things and we're just dancing to its music. It's not good, it's not bad, it just is. And so that's uh, atheists describing the whole issue of right and wrong and, and morality. Even just reading those words, it almost like refutes itself. I hardly have to say anything. <laughs> to uh, convince you that that is hor that's like a nightmare. It's horribly wrong, right? But let's, let's go ahead and do it anyhow. The issue with, with uh, an atheist morality is the ground for saying something is right or wrong, okay? And so, essentially, there, there, there's nothing objective here. A good example conversation is, say, say, say you're talking to an atheist friend, and they're like, you know, I don't, I don't think there really is right and wrong, and you Christians think you, you have everything figured out, but we're just, we're just advanced animals, man. And you'd be like, all right, hold on, Mr. Atheist, let me ask you a question. Do you think the Catholic Inquisition was wrong? Do you think it's wrong to torture people because of their beliefs? And they'll be like, yeah, that's wrong. Why is it wrong? Well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't hurt other people. You, you shouldn't force other people to believe something just because you're more powerful or you have more weapons. Why is that wrong, Mr. Atheist? Because it's wrong. I said it's wrong. Who are you to make declarations about what's right and wrong for all of the human race? You know what I mean? Like, it's really hard to do it. And you know what the truth is? Why that person thinks it's wrong? It's because they've inherited an ethic from the culture that relates to Christianity. I don't know if you know this, but Christians have been the big show for a long time in this part of the world. And still in the South, you know, Christianity is the big show. But there's a culture that's just out there that is, that is wrong to do certain things, and that's based on old ideas that are traced back to Jesus and his teachings, and you know, t maybe some teachings before that as well. Consider this for a moment, the virtue of love. When Christianity was starting to take over the Roman Empire and really make a big majority of the Romans Christians, some Romans started complaining. They're like, you know what the problem with this Christian stuff is? It's too sissy. All this mercy and, and love of people, it's, it's taking the manliness out of our culture, and that's what's wrong with Rome. It's these stupid Christians and their sissy morals, right? People wouldn't say that today. If you say, you know, it, you should be compassionate to people, people are not going to be like, why? They're going to be like, yeah, you're right, I should. Compassion's great. Everybody knows that. Right? So there, these things that are out there in the culture are, are traceable to somewhere. Like I mentioned before, the idea that morals come from society 
just it, it, basically what it does is it destroys any authority of those morals. You don't really prove it. You're just like, this is what we do. This is what we believe. This is what our society, if it's socially constructive, there's no authority to that idea. But if it really is wrong, if it's objectively wrong, then there has to be a source, a reason, something behind why it actually is wrong. And atheism does not give you that. There's no ground. We're not standing anywhere. We're floating. I think you made a good argument. Uh, if, if, um, I think it was in the Link Link book about um, if, if our morals are determined by evolution, then why is it wrong to, you know, is abortion wrong? Because he was speaking to somebody and he was an atheist but a doctor. And he said, well, yes, I believe abortion's wrong because, believe, you know, well, well, if, it's, if our morals are evolution, evolutionary, mm -hmm. then you would want to, it would be like survival of your species. You would want to abort babies who are, have defects or mm -hmm. things like that. Why can't we mm -hmm. kill off people who are defective? Yeah. If it's based on the survival of our species, mm -hmm. evolutionarily, we would want to get rid of people mm -hmm. who are defective. Mm -hmm. But yet, but a, the atheist still said, well, it's wrong. It's wrong. So they're not being consistent with the, their own beliefs. Yeah, exactly. On atheism, you should sterilize all handicapped or defective people, you know, which is just horrifying. You sound like a psychopath even if you just say that that's what would be consistent. And uh, on atheism, you should, you should probably rape, if you're a guy or a girl, whatever, uh, you should rape as many people as you can because if, if you can rape somebody and get away with it, it proves that you are the, the fittest and that your DNA should be passed on and that you should replicate yourself as many times as possible. What do we do with people that kill handicapped people and rape as many people as possible? What do we do with these people? What we do is we take them out of the population and we put them in jail because they're crazy. But if you're going to be consistent with atheism, that would not only be permissible, but morally obligatory, that sort of behavior. Yeah. I was going to say, like, in order to say that the people that have those defects and whatnot should be killed, you have to define a right way of living or a right person yeah. or the strongest. You have to not only... Well, they would ground that in evolution. They would say whatever is superior, yeah. whatever yeah. is... Superior. Whoever wins yeah. the fight. Stephen Hawking is, is uh, known to be the world's smartest man. If if, if, but if he <laughs> took over, he wouldn't be living. And therefore, <laughs> ergo, who is the fittest survivor? Right, right, right. Well, I I vote for keeping Stephen Hawking alive, even if he defies God, because I I have a different moral grounding. This is Ravi Zacharias. Anybody ever heard of him? He's an Indian guy who converted to Christianity, and he does talks all around the world. He has a uh, Ravi Zacharias Center. I think it's part of Oxford. There's a motto called England. Believers to think, thinkers to believe. Yeah. I read his book, Who Made God, in 2005. It was the text I used for this class for the first time I taught it. I have a little video here of his where he's talking about this issue right here, the, the morals axiology, morals, and dealing with the question that we've just been talking about. So I just want to play this video for you. Right over here, one more question. Sorry, Pete. Right here. Dr. Zacharias, thank you very much for tonight. Uh, your topic was, what if I don't need God? And then, if I understood you correctly, then your discussion was on the vacuity of life and the innate evil in man and the end and ruin and destruction of man if we don't believe in God. Uh, and Jesus said God wants those to worship and worship in the truth. Uh, Dallas Willard has taken that to the point of saying, are you willing to even die for truth is the ultimate thing to pursue. In the context of your talk, what if it's true that, that man without God lives a life that leads to destruction? Uh, does that make the gospel true? And does it make it wrong? In other words, uh, isn't it not, you're self-referential in that, that you're saying man has an end. Therefore, the end should be peace. But what if man doesn't have an end and we're just animals at heart and that's the end of man and we need to come... So how do you answer the way he says that's just the truth? It's ugly. 
uh, where the insane man saying who's going to take responsibility? We are. How do we handle this? Could you just answer the? How do you respond to that personally, and what relevance does that to the actual truth yeah. of the gospel? Yeah, actually, my answer I hope was broader than that. It is the fact that the ideas of morality, the ideas of meaning, the ideas of hope, the idea of a destiny, none of them ultimately make sense in a naturalistic universe, especially the first two. So it is not so much the destiny, it is the very present. You know, here's something you need to hear, you and I need to remember time and time again, and so I want the audience to hear this clearly. Chesterton said this, meaninglessness not, does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. Meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness ultimately comes from being weary of pleasure. So whether it's pain that provokes the question of the existence of God, or pleasure that ultimately leaves you empty-handed and completely decimated that there was no perpetual novelty in what you pursued the line, that ought to get the naturalist to ask the question, where am I actually headed if even pleasure ultimately inoculates you from more and more meaning and leaves you more empty than before. So my answer is, you need God to even make sense out of the questions you ask, leave alone the answers. The question of morality, the question of meaning, and the question of hope, that these are meaningless questions in a purely deterministic, material, naturalistic universe. Why do we talk of good and evil if we are, we are descendants from primordial slime? Why do we do that? It's because, you know, uh, a computer does not spell pain with the moral ramifications that you and I spell it. We have the moral ramifications of it. So I say that for the naturalist, even the questions ultimately don't make sense. Let me, uh, let me put it this way and then we will close. Two illustrations of this. You know, uh, when I was in um, two university settings, let me go, one was Nottingham, University of Nottingham. A fellow stood up and said there was too much evil in this world, therefore he didn't believe in God. So I said, when you say there's evil, aren't you assuming there's such a thing as good? He said, that is correct. I said, when you assume there's such a thing as good, aren't you assuming there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which you differentiate between good and evil? We went into a bit of interaction on that, and I sustained my point. He said, I'll grant you that. When you say there's evil, there's such a thing as good. When you say there's such a thing as good, you assume there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which you differentiate between good and evil. I said, if you assume there's such a thing as a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver, but that's whom you're trying to disprove and not prove. If there's no moral law giver, there's no moral law. If there's no moral law, there's no good. If there's no good, there's no evil. What is your question? <laughs> he stood there and he looked at me and he said this, what then am I asking you? <laughs> now, there is a challenge here that uh, I can't take time to elaborate on. Somebody here might say, wait a minute, wait a minute, I can grant you the first three. That there is evil, there must be good, there may be an absolute moral standard. But why does it have to take you to a person? My response to that is, the question of evil always is raised by a person or about a person. So personhood is intrinsic to the question. Which means the answer must have the value of personhood in it. And there's no way to gain the value of personhood unless we ourselves are endowed by intrinsic worth from a person of absolute worth. Alright, so what he's saying there is people want to ask a question, what about all this evil in the world, right? That's something we're going to spend a whole lecture on later on this week. And he's saying, well, look, if there's evil in the world, then there's also got to be good. Otherwise, you wouldn't know the difference between good and evil. If everything was evil, then nothing would be evil, right? And so if there's evil, there's good. And he's like, well, if there's both good and evil in the world, then there's got to be some sort of standard, by which you can tell the difference between something that's evil and something that's good. That standard has to come from some sort of moral being, or a lawgiver is the way he puts it, right? And he's like, but you're saying there isn't any moral being at the top of the chain. There isn't any God. So if there isn't any God, then there isn't any standard by which we can tell the difference between evil and good. So there isn't any good and there isn't any evil. What is it you're asking about? In other words, the very 
existence of evil points to the existence of God, which is a strange way of thinking about it, I realize. But the simple fact is, if there is an absolute standard, as opposed to just a relative standard that's true for someone but not true for someone else, then there has to be an absolute moral being at the top of it that generates that standard. Otherwise, that standard is not absolute. It's relative, which means you can have your own moral standard, which might include torturing kids for fun, and Melvin has his own moral standard, which might include eating ice cream for every meal. You know, and people that don't eat ice cream with their meal are immoral people, according to Melvin. And if you don't torture children for fun, I don't know why you got that one, uh, then uh, Levi is going to call you an immoral person, right? So you can't have people just making up their own standards if there really is truly evil and good. If there really is evil and good, not just an th we think it is, but if it really is, then there is some sort of absolute standard, and then that leads back to an absolute source. There's another argument, too, that's kind of cool. It's by a guy named Alvin uh, and the Chipmunks. No, Alvin Plantinga. Has anybody ever heard of Alvin Plantinga? I don't know if Chad mentions him. Plantinga what? <laughs> Plantinga. He's a philosopher. I don't know if he's still a professor at Notre Dame, but he, he was for a long time uh, a very well-known professor at Notre Dame. And he developed an evolutionary argument against evolution. And it goes like this. Our mental faculties are the way they are because of evolution. That is, your mind works the way it works. You know, you're able to perceive the outside wor world. You can, set, you can understand what I'm saying, at least some of the time. You know, that, that your mental faculties, they are the result of evolution, assuming evolution is true. They are the result of evolution. Evolution functions on natural selection, so survivability was the determining factor in forming our mental faculties. So your mental faculties are based on evolution. Evolution works on natural selection. Natural selection is the whole idea of if something helps you survive, it's going to select for that thing. Therefore, what really determined how your brain works is how well you survive, not how well it coheres to the outside world. And so what he says is that there's no real reason why survivability and reality should coincide. In other words, mild paranoia is more helpful to keep you alive than the sort of brain you actually have. If you're in a hostile context, which allegedly early man was in with predators and whatnot chasing after him. In other words, if evolution is true, then we shouldn't trust our mental faculties that they're accurately able to process reality. If that's true, then we can't know that evolution is true because our mental faculties generated the theory of evolution. And so that's, I don't know if you follow that or not, it's not on the quiz, but you can look it up. Al Alvin Plantinga's evolutionary argument against evolution. He wrote a whole scholarly paper that is way more complicated than what I just explained to you. It is a pretty fascinating argument that is worthy of your consideration if you're, if you're interested in it. I'm telling you certain things during the, this class that are things that you can follow up on later if you want. And then there's the, the core of what I'm doing as well. C.S. Lewis said the following, whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a real right and wrong, you will find the same man going back on this a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he will be complaining, it's not fair before you can say Jack Robinson. On each of these different worldviews, what Meister says is that we should, we should do two tests on it. One is test the logic of it, and two is test the livability of it, okay? And so what we wanna do is analyze each based on logic and livability. With atheism, we would say morals are socially constructed or determined by evolution. Here's the problem. If morals are socially constructive, they're not authoritative, so you can do whatever you want. If it's determined by evolution, we lock you away in jail. So this worldview is not livable. It's not, you can't actually live by it, at least not in this society. All right, pantheism. Let's talk about pantheism a little bit here and offer some criticisms. All right, so if, if we are one with God, 
That's what pantheists believe, right? We're one with God, and God is the changeless all. Then we, God, need to move beyond our ignorance and become enlightened by realizing our own divinity. But to come to know something is to change, and God can't change because he's the changeless all. So there's a, there's a logical contradiction at the heart of pantheism, this idea that God is everything. Let me say it another way for you. Can rocks think? No. Okay. But can God think? No. But God is a rock. You know what I'm saying? So like you can't, you can't have it both ways. Like either, either there is a consciousness or there isn't. And if there is, then the rock does think. But like I can't think a rock thinks. That just seems preposterous. Rocks just sit there. I'm trying not to make fun of it because I, I want to be respectful. But at the same time, I am trying to point out a criticism at the heart here. What were you going to say? What if it's just, it is a part of God. Everything is God, but my bones don't think. Okay. So let's say the universe, let's say that God is impersonal. That God's not personal, he's impersonal. The universe is impersonal. But I'm a person and I'm supposed to be the same as the universe. So again, we have a contradiction because you can't have persons and an impersonal reality be the same thing. You know what I'm saying? It just doesn't work logically. Because they say that they have different aspects of God? That's not what they're saying. Uh, everything is equally God in the same way. Yeah, yeah. Would it be like Shinto or like native religions, like a, like a spirit running through everything? Would those be considered pantheistic? Yeah, yeah. A lot of, uh, what do they call those? Folk religions or uh, animism. It's like the idea that everything's al alive. Let me say a couple other things here. Look at page 63 in Building Belief with me. But there's this, there's this part where uh, Chad is talking to this Buddhist woman. Dan, could you read a uh, paragraph? I decided to test her position and determine her insolvability. My wife and I had been cooking dinner for the evening. And Margretna was sitting at the kitchen table. On the stove was a pan of boiling water. And just before I added the spaghetti noodles, a thought came to mind. I said to her, Margretta, with the pantheistic world view, everything is God, right? Go ahead, Jamie. Yes, she said, everything is God and everything is one. There are no distinctions. But if there are no distinctions, I said, ultimately no right and wrong, no distinction between cruelty and non-cruelty, or between good and evil, correct? Yes, she confirmed, there are no ultimate rights and wrongs, goods and evils. Next up, Sierra. But as she was saying this, I took the boiling water off the stove and held it over her head, pretending as though I would spill it on top of her. Are you sure there are no rights and wrongs? No mm -hmm. distinctions between good and evil, cruelty and non-cruelty, I asked. Her dark mind was racing. I could almost see the wheels spinning. Well, she said, I guess maybe there is a distinction between these things. Jesse, take us home. The point of the story, of course, is that we can say there are no distinctions between good and evil, and there are no rights and wrongs, that suffering is a mere illusion, and that cruelty is not morally distinct from non-cruelty. But we do not really live that way. We live as if there are truly moral absolutes. Now, does this not prove that we that there are, but it does that there are, but it does demonstrate that those who hold to the atheistic worldview or pantheistic worldview cannot consistently believe in the real right and wrong. They must borrow what they hold to be true from theism. Okay, so this is uh, a conversation that he had where he kind of exposes the contradiction in that system. Oh, here's another question for pantheism. On the subject of ontology, there's no distinction between creature and creator. There's no distinction actually between all of us. We're all part of the same reality, right? If that's true, pick a number between 1 and 10. Oh, don't say it. Pick a number between 1 and 100. Okay. All right. Is it 52? No. 
Why can't I read her mind if we're all part of the same reality? What was it? 53. Hold on. I'm going to go meditate and I'll be right back. <laughs> we have our own heads, right? Different minds. And so, but they're saying that's an illusion. We're all part of the same reality. But if we're all part of, all are part of the same reality, we should be able to read each other's minds. Doesn't that make perfect sense? Um, and even their most experienced yogis and gurus are not able to perform the simplest of mind reading exercises. It's not livable. For the morality, like the example of the boiling water over the girl's head, you can't live that way. You can't just go around saying there's no difference between good and evil. Like, if somebody hurts my kids, I can't just be like, oh, it doesn't matter. There's no good and evil. I'm just going to go in the closet and meditate for a little while until I can detach myself from my affection for them. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's not livable. You know, they need me to care about them. And who knows what they'll turn out to be if I actually was consistent in living this way. Your body is not physical, it's just an illusion. Well, boy, it sure does seem that my body does affect my mind. You know, the things, yeah, hangry is actually a word in the dictionary now. You're, you're so hungry, you're angry. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, our bodies do affect our minds. Have you ever been really tired and it and suddenly it was hard to think or like you started repeating yourself or um, you ever work really, really hard and then like at the end of the day you're still working, doing something like I was putting in wood floors recently and like by the end of the day you start making mistakes. Everything's getting tired. You're getting tired of bending over, tired of like measuring and cutting things or whatever example you can think from your own life. It seems like our bodies do affect the real us, don't they? If you drink a lot of coffee and then put hot chocolate in it, and then eat a donut, you experience a mental <laughs> sensation, right? It's not, you know, it's almost like your physical body does affect you. It's almost as if it's part of you, right? And so that would contradict the anthropology of pantheism. All right, so what about theism? Are there crit criticisms of theism? Yes, there are. There are criticisms of every worldview. It's not like there are three worldviews because a bunch of the world's dumb and we are just the smart ones. It's not, it's not actually that way. There are good criticisms of each of the different views, and that's why we're here. We wouldn't have a whole class on it if it was just obvious, right? And so what are the criticisms of theism? Well, one is on this whole issue of axiology or ethics or morals is what I call the problem of evil. You've heard me refer to this a couple of times already. But it's the idea that if God is so powerful and God is so good, then why does he allow so much evil in our world, especially senseless suffering? That's a common criticism of theism. Another one is that we don't have a way to physically prove God exists, right? We don't have some sort of experiment we can do that definitively shows, using the scientific method, that God exists, right? At least there's none that, that I, you know, people have tried. They, they've done a prayer experiment, you know, where they get people to pray. They get even atheists to pray and, and to see what the differences are and all this sort of thing. And it just doesn't pan out as some sort of solid evidence that it is exactly, you know, this or that. Here's another criticism about epistemology, right? This idea that people get revelation from God. Did anybody get a, like, a little like, eh, I don't know about that one. Yeah, what do you do with wackos that say God told them to kill their kids? What do you do with those people, right? What do you do with Abraham, right? Or how about the Euthyphro dilemma? Is something wrong because God says it's wrong? Or is it wrong and that's why God says don't do it? If it's wrong anyhow and that's why God says don't do it, then you don't really need God to determine morals. They're already out there. He's just telling you what they are. So God has nothing to do with the morals. They just exist. So you don't need God. Or the other way, it's only wrong because God says it's wrong. That makes it sound like God's just arbitrarily commanding certain things to be wrong. That's the Euthyphro dilemma and trying to figure out which way do you go with that and 
Yeah. Uh, would another argument be all the multiple theistic theistic uh, views pertaining to God? Um, that there's no definite one that seems to be the right one. Oh yeah, yeah. That's a Peter Milligan argument, right? He's like, look, uh, I don't believe in Zeus or the Tooth Fairy or, you know, Artemis. You know, neither do you. So you're atheist with respect to all these other gods. You, I just believe in one less god than you. I don't believe in Yahweh either, and you do. What makes this any different? So yeah, there are criticisms against theism too. I don't want to make the case like this theism is just a slam dunk. It might seem like that to us because we are insiders to that worldview. And obviously we have bias and we prefer that worldview. But yeah, there are, criti there are valid criticisms. It is our task in this class to be able to come up with answers for the hope that lies within us with gentleness and respect. We are going to be dealing with some of those things. I'm not, I'm not really going to spend a lot of time disproving other people's beliefs. Instead, what I'm going to focus our time on as we go forward here is proving our beliefs. You know what I mean? Because, look, if you can show somebody that the Bible is true, you've got it. You're done. There's nothing else to talk about. The only thing else there is to talk about is what does the Bible say? What does it mean about this or that, right? So instead of trying to disprove this, 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 and this, you know, you don't have to go into all that. You just be like, look, this is what this, this says here. And then they have to either, uh, that's, what, that's where it brings the conversation. Does that make sense? No, Sean, that's crazy. That's just totally crazy. All right, so let's just do a little review. All right, so we've talked about reasons to defend the faith, right? I gave you four reasons to defend the faith. The Bible commands us to defend the faith. It's good to build your own faith. It's good to help other people. And a lot of times you can't even do evangelism with an unbeliever unless you first handle some of these objections that they're going to bring up. And they're going to bring up other objections, like what about the Crusades, man? What about the Inquisition? What about the Salem witch hunt? They're going to bring up those kinds of things as well. And I meant to say this before. I don't know everything. I don't know if you knew that already. I think you did, right? I've worked on this for a while, and I, I know certain answers to certain things, and I know a lot of other places where I can look and find answers to things. But it's totally normal for me to say to somebody, I have no idea how to answer you on this. Let me get back to you. And that's what you should always do rather than making something up. Unless you know what you're talking about. If, if you have you know, a take on something, by all means, share it with your friend. But if they're like, I, I don't believe because why did this happen or why did that happen? And if you really don't have an answer, just be like, look, man, I gotta, find, I gotta, I gotta research that. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. Let me get back to you. What's your number? Or let's hook up on Facebook or whatever, however you want to communicate with that person so that you can come back with a good answer. You know, there's nothing worse than giving just a pathetic uh, answer that doesn't make any sense. And then the person going away being like, I knew Christianity was a joke. You don't want to do that. You know what I mean? So if you don't know, you just say you don't know. None of us knows everything. Not even close. So those are the reasons to defend the faith, why we do uh, apologetics. On the subject of what is truth, we talked about objective truths versus subjective truths. Somebody want to tell me the difference between those two? Objective is fact no matter what, and subjective is based on the person. Okay, very good. How do you go about showing somebody, let's say somebody says Christianity is good for you, but I prefer Sikhism. Oh, that's the law of Okay, could you explain that? That, yes, A does not equal what's not A, therefore they can't be true. Uh-huh. What's, what, what is the A of Christianity? The resurrection. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, good, that's a good one. The resurrection. So if Jesus really was resurrected from the dead, then he really is the Messiah. He really is the one God sent to save us, right? And what did Jesus say? Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me, right? So this, this whole A business, this is all Jesus. This isn't our fault. He's the one that said it, right? And so... There's not really room for it to be true and then like have some other like back door over here where it's like, oh yeah, that's okay too. No, he said there's, he's the only way to the Father. And so either we're on board with Jesus or we're going we're gonna to say, well, he was a little off his game and you know, he exaggerated a little bit. 
I mean, look, if you're going to do that, then we've kind of lost Jesus in the midst of all of your efforts to tame him. You, you have to let him be who he is. And he said, he's the way to the Father, the only way to the Father, right? So that's our A. So if that's true, then, then the Siddhartha Gautama, who was a great guy, did a great thing. He gave up his, his wealth and his palace, and he followed the Eightfold Path, and he was able to meditate and achieve enlightenment to some degree. That's all great, but you know what? As far as salvation goes, that doesn't help, right? Or Muhammad, who taught monotheism, which is something we believe in as well. He, he fought against idolatry. He went and he conquered Mecca, and he tried to establish this truth that there's only one God. That's nice, but like, what about salvation? What about dealing with our sins, our crimes against God. I don't think it works, their system of saying, God's going to put all your bad deeds on your left shoulder and all your good deeds on your right shoulder, and whichever way is heavier is the way you're going to go. Justice just doesn't work that way. If you kill my mother, but then like you do a lot of good things the rest of your life, I don't care, you still killed my mom. It doesn't make the bad things you've done go away just because you do a bunch of good things. I don't care if you give blood a million times in your life. You killed my mom. So good deeds don't make bad deeds go away. You need a savior. You need something to, to uh, deal with that sin issue. And I think Christianity is such a strong answer to that. And then in this lecture, we looked at theism, atheism, and pantheism. And these are not religions, but categories, worldviews, ways of thinking about the world and about people and about what's right and wrong. And we can see the different positions and different critiques against these positions. But in the end, how we're going to proceed is we're going to look at positive arguments for this category over here, and in particular for Christianity. So you can see in the, um, the outline there, tomorrow we're going to work on arguments for God's existence. We're going to do two whole lectures on arguments for God's existence. And then we're going to look at the historical Jesus. And what I mean by that is that Jesus was an actual person that lived, as opposed to just like something somebody wrote about, you know, some uh, fiction. He was an actual historical person. So that's tomorrow. And then we're going to get into the resurrection. We're going to do two lectures on the resurrection. Um, Bill Craig's going to go first, and then me. And then after that, we're going to do two on the Old Testament, two on the New Testament, and then handle three objections show you, you know, some ways of thinking about those things. There are lots of objections, and I always, like, wonder which ones I should do. I always do the problem of evil because it's so common, but the last two I just changed up for this class. You know, I, I do different ones basically every time. And if you have an objection that is burning in your soul and that you're dying for me to address, and if I have anything to say about it, let, you know, I'll, I'll definitely address it, and, and bring, but you have to let me know, okay? So, and you all have my email address, right? kingdomuprising.com. That's good. So you can email me or talk to me. Let's do the quiz. And looks like we're going to get out a little early today. How, how about that? If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening and check us out online at restitutio.org where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.